This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School. Let's jump right in. My first guest for today's show, joining me via Zoom, is Christopher Malaro, who's the CEO and co-founder at Neuroflow. Chris, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Carl. Excited to be here. So we were just we were just chatting before before the show started, and Chris not only was in our entrepreneurial programs, but actually took my class at Wharton. It's got to have been about five years ago now. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that. I mean, it feels like yesterday. Almost. Yeah, to, to, to me, to me too. So, so Chris, we're going to get into it, but first, let me let me point our listeners to your to your company name and website. It's neuroflow.com. and thankfully, you really followed my advice in class because that's a really great name, and it's a name that doesn't really require that I spell anything for you. So, just neuroflow.com. and Chris is the CEO and co-founder. So Chris, give us the elevator pitch for Neuroflow. Sure, uh, we use technology to integrate behavioral health into all care settings. How many people out there have diabetes and also depression, but don't get the depression treated or identified and yet we know it affects their care. So we take uh, assessment tools, self-help educational tools and, um, and therapy referral services to integrate that into primary care and other care settings. All right, so behavioral health, and maybe we could drill down just one level on that. Maybe sure. give us an example of the most common use mode for your product. Sure, I mean, everybody, I'm sure all your listeners um, go to the, at least their primary care provider once a year for their annual wellness visit. Um, they may or may not realize, but typically PCPs give what's called a depression assessment on either paper and pen, or they verbally give it to you. Um, and then depending on how you assess them that assessment, they'll refer you to a psychiatrist or give you antidepressant or say, you know, you're good to go. And then you mosey on your way out of the office and nothing ever happens for the next 12 months. Um, if you get referred to a psychiatrist, that's up to you on if you follow up and actually do that. There's no continuity of care. Uh, and the sad part is we know most people don't follow up with that care for a variety of different reasons. And so technology can help augment that workflow, automate the follow-up and the follow-through, engaging those patients, tracking their outcomes more than once a year because how does depression happen just once a year? It doesn't. So um, having a more clear, holistic picture on patients to give that feedback to their doctors. Does depression, is depression typically the, the primary ailment that you address? No, it's, uh, it's either depression and, you know, there's a lot of variants of depression too. So what uh, we work with postpartum depression and OB behind settings and, you know, all those different variants. Uh, but I would say depression and anxiety and their substance are the two primary. And how to give us the setting in which you apply, maybe, maybe just walk us through a little bit how the product actually works and what setting, the setting in which it's used. Sure. So, you know, going back to that annual wellness exam, uh, example, um, rather than doing the PHQ-9 in the typical old-fashioned way, 
a provider would invite you to a NeuroFlow account free of use to the to the patient, and um, you would do your assessment through there. Based on the data that we collect, we'll then use AI and, and data analytics to customize your experience. So Carl and I would have two different experiences on the app based on the data that we're being input, right? And uh, then we track you and we engage you automatically throughout your experience. We'll text you to remind you to, um, you know, wellness tips, uh, sleep reminders, um, different tips on how to improve your diet and your uh, mindfulness and breathing uh, guides and, you know, those sorts of things. All while the while sending outcomes data back to those providers so they could identify rising risks in their population sent directly to the electronic health record so they don't even have to like as a provider they don't have to do extra work um, the patients get better faster they we they use the things like the emergency room less often and um and their overall health improves it's not just their behavioral health yeah and does the product provide more than assessments? Does it also provide cognitive therapy, mindfulness uh, treatments, other kinds of interventions, or is it only assessments? Yeah, so that's, that's what I was referring to with the um, different content resources and activities. So the, based on the assessment data, uh, we'll automatically start to assign and drip different cognitive uh, related exercises to you. So maybe you'll get a certain journaling activity that is evidence-based, you know, well-researched to help with depression. Maybe I'll get a breathing exercise or a mindfulness type of exercise to do. We'll take each patient, each individual on a very personalized custom journey based on what their needs are and what the, the data is suggesting. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to follow up on that one more level, but before I do, let me make sure I understand who your customer is. So your customer your user is the end user, the patient, or at least one of your users, primary user, but your customer is the provider. Is that right? Yeah. So we actually, we sell to both the provider and the payer. So in the payer use case, it's the same exact use case I just talked about, but instead of the provider analyzing the data, it would be a care navigator or care manager at the health insurer level. But the, um, that's right. Our business model is a B2B model. It's completely it's actually more, it's better than free to the patient, yeah. the end user. They get rewarded uh, with gift cards for doing the activities that wow. they could redeem. Yeah, so maybe you can help us navigate some of the vagaries of terminology. So the provider, that would be the behavioral health uh, professional who's my doctor or my therapist uh, would be the provider or the health system is the That's provider. Right. Yeah, so but the provider... The and the payer, who, who's the payer? Is the payer uh, an insurance company or an employer or who is typically the payer? So whoever's at risk in the, in the scenario for that, pay, for that patient's health and the, their cost of their health. So in many cases, that's fully insured employers. And in other cases, it, uh, it could be a, you know, a local original blues plan, it could be United at uh, you know, all the nationals that are at risk for that cost. Got it. Now, the question I wanted to, I, I deferred just to, while I was asking that, that follow-up is how, how you navigate, it's, it sounds to me like you're practicing medicine. So you're practicing medicine uh, uh, and I can see you're already 
your your eyes. Uh, uh, <laughs> you're going to have a lot to say about this, I can tell. But how do you navigate the FDA issues? To what extent is this practicing medicine? And how do you navigate the regulatory framework? Yeah, I well, so from a regulatory, the, our biggest regulatory uh, considerations at Neuroflow are things related to HIPAA and security and privacy. The, all of the data that we collect is considered patient health identifiable information. It's owned by the patients. We don't monetize that data or sell that data in any shape or form. And we, you know, the security of that data is, is the first priority of our system as a cloud-based technology. Um, so that's the biggest regulatory thing that we have to contend with. The FDA is not really a consideration for our realm of business because we're what's considered a clinical decision support tool. So we're not a we're not treating these illnesses and we're not diagnosing them. We're rather providing the data so that the providers for so your physicians can make a more informed decision when um, coming up with a diagnosis or treatment planning with you. And then we engage those patients. So there's nothing that we're doing in lieu of the physicians um, or replacing them, uh, which, is a, which is an important distinction. If we were saying you can use Neuroflow, we collect that data and we diagnose definitively if you have depression or not, that's another story. Uh, but in this case, we're, we're assisting that workflow, um, collecting that data as opposed to treating it. But, but I, help, help, me, help me thread that needle because when you say there's a resource like a journaling exercise, Mm-hmm. That that is a treatment, isn't it? Well, it, um, it again, it, it sounds, I guess, uh, nuanced, but it all comes down to claims. So I we're, see. you know, it, it's just a it's a wellness tool that can be, um, it, and it depends on what context it's used in, right? And so it for this, it has to be um, assigned by a provider. So you're not doing that just without the provider intersection that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And I and I guess there's got to be some really strongly established precedent in that there is there's so many mindfulness apps, behavioral yeah. health apps that are out there. They must be generally considered safe. And so it really comes down to yeah, what claim, what medical claims you could make about those exactly. interventions. Exactly. Yeah. And just because you brought it up Carl, the 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 point solutions that you're referencing uh, this is where we think there's a huge opportunity and we're just cracking the surface um, in terms of where apps can do so much more, especially yeah. in medical settings. And that's the clinical feedback loop. Most yeah. of the other competitors out there just these kind of standalone apps that do their thing. Mm-hmm. They don't help inform the care back to the providers, which is you know something special. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, boy, there's so much to follow up, but I want to I want to get back to the entrepreneurial story. So, so give us the origin story. Where did this come from? Man, so before uh, starting the company, before going to business school, which is where we met, I served in the army uh, for a number of years. Um, I, I got out as a captain in the field artillery, uh, and in that world, you know, to make a long story short, I, I was personally affected with. Uh, mental health, but more precisely the gaps in care related to mental health. I lost a soldier who was in my unit to depression. And, um, you know, that was just a motivating factor for me. I, I didn't get out of the army and say, I'm going to start this company, Neuroflow. That was kind of, that would play a feature kind of state in, in the story. When I got to Wharton, I was taking a class called the Business of Healthcare and, and uh, Neuroscience, uh, Brain mm-hmm. Science 
taught by Dr. Michael Platt and um, my co-founder who is in the PhD bioengineering program was in the class. We met and we signed up for, uh, we, we tried to create a business plan for the business plan competition. And we, uh, we lost abysmally. Oh, <laughs> uh, really? Yeah, <laughs> we did. But what it, the whole process taught us, one, this could be a lot of fun. And two, there was a huge unmet need. Like it, taught, it showed us that there was mil- tens of millions of people that struggled and there really wasn't a, a winner in the market in terms of addressing it. And so that was the motivating factor to, to start the company about five years ago. Yeah. Um, well, so at what point, I, now I, I remember you did win some award. Was that in the first round of the business plan or did you do it again uh, or you did it again? Yeah. Well, so we lost that initial business plan. It was the Y Prize competition. Oh, the Y Prize. You know, okay. Yeah. So we lost the Y Prize. And we went on a rabid winning streak after that. We won $140,000 in <laughs> wow. all non-dilutive money in our, for the next 15 months while in my second year of business school. Wow. Okay, so at what point, while you had that streak of amazing, hopefully it wasn't luck, it was an amazing demonstration of your competence. Um, at what point did you say, wow, there's a lot of social proof out there. We got, we got to go really do this. Um, I think we, we made that leap. So I did my, uh, so we had the summer venture award and that's when we really started digging into this. And, um, and I think proved out that hey, we have something here, something of real value right. if we can get a grip on it. And, um, and just the second year of MBA school was so fun because all of my classmates, all every class, the project was just Neuroflow, I gave yeah, news. Yeah. And so we graduated and I was, you know, knee, knee deep in the fundraising process. And two months later, we closed our initial seed round. And you know, I honestly, looking back on it, I, I just think once we started with it and once we started winning those competitions and getting those proof points, we, we really never looked back. Wow, it kind of warms my heart that our our institution is actually incubating this stuff for real. It's awesome. <laughs> it was uh, awesome. Yeah. So, so you know, I got I got a question. I if I were, I, I don't actually remember the project back when you were in school, but if I were to guess, I I would guess that a typical MBA student would frame this as a consumer opportunity, as a as a more of a consumer facing. App. How did you eventually, how did you find this business to business business model? Was that how you originally started? Did you figure that early on? Or did you have to sort of find that model as you got into it? So it's actually the opposite. So we started out as a B2B without an app in the picture at all. So uh-huh. we were a better mousetrap, if you will, to collect this data while in the clinic so that we could show the feedback to the providers like from session to session. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until maybe a year into the, the, I guess the project at that point, when we started getting a lot of feedback saying, you know, this would be really helpful if we could collect this data remotely in between appointments. And then the, you know, the app was born after that. Yeah. If you're just joining us, I'm Carl Ulrich, and this is Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Today, I'm joined by Christopher Malaro, who's the CEO and co-founder at Neuroflow. Uh, Chris, so I, I want to uh, turn to a question, a two-part question. The, the, the first part is, 
enterprise sales is notoriously challenging. <laughs> and not only that, but you're selling into notoriously sluggish uh, organizations, healthcare providers and payers. Uh, how, how did you crack the sales process? And what kind of, and the second part of the question is, to what extent did you have to marshal evidence to them? Oh boy. Um, I should never ask two part questions. Let's start with the, let's start with just the talk, talk to us about the sales process. Yeah. There's no light way of putting it that the, the healthcare enterprise sales process is, you know, we'll just say hard. <laughs> we, uh, you know, it's funny, we look back on it four years ago, our first customer was a private psychologist, just a single doc, a single woman who was in the suburbs of Philly, who saw that this could help her. She signed up for $99 a month. And <laughs> yeah, that is, I'll never forget that. Um, and the, you know, we moved up then from selling to folks like her to then clinics with a few doctors, few psychologists, to then selling to medical clinics, not, you know, now we're talking physicians where there's more reimbursements involved. And then we sold our first health system. Jefferson was our first hospital health system. And then we sold, uh, you know, a year later, we sold a, a Department of Defense. We sold a military facility hospital. Then we sold a, a regional blues plan. We gradually started moving up market. And just a few weeks ago, we announced a deal where we're supporting the disability uh, claimants through Prudential Insurance, Fortune 50 company. And so it's kind of, you know, looking back at that, the journey to move upstream, you know, I don't think they may have been done accidentally. It wasn't done intentionally, but I think we, we learned, you know, kind of graduated to that next level with each, each phase and we're able to build on top of it. And so and today we sell to, you know, multinational um, uh, insurance companies, health systems um, that span multiple states and countries. Yeah, I'm going to ask a strategic question about enterprise sales because I have I, I've heard of two different approaches. So the approach you took was just find anybody who will pay for this product and get started, and then move up the food chain. Yep. But some people would argue, no, you got to land a premium client first because then everyone says, oh, you've got Intermountain Health or you've got someone who's you know really the top of the food chain. I want to be part of that. Did you think about that strategic question? Like what kind of customers you, you would go after first? So you asked your second part of the question earlier was about data and proof points. And the, and the reason why we didn't go after the major customers first is because we didn't have the data and the proof points. Yeah. And we didn't have a big name science researcher behind our, like as a co-founder of the company. And so we, you know, maybe with, in another world with another founding team, that is the right approach to take. We had kind of that burden of proof to say, okay, can we do this and is it going to work? And so we were able to do that and de-risk it with those earlier clients to then use that, you know, use those um, proof points and use that data to parlay it into the larger sales. So I, I don't think that we really had an option. We, yeah, we had to do yeah, yeah, you have to do what you have to do. So that does lead to that second part of the question. Can let's talk a little bit about evidence. Uh, is this a leap of faith or can, can you yet marshal evidence? Yeah. Um, I would say at the beginning, it probably was a leap of faith. <laughs> we, one thing though, is that we've never 
been big on reinventing the wheel, right? There's tons of evidence-based care and modules and different um, care models that are proven to be really effective, like blind study, peer-reviewed study after study. Um, they just don't have technology behind them. So the idea that you could use technology then to scale them efficiently is kind of where we're coming from. And, um, and so yes, the answer is we have tons of data now, which is really exciting. We support 350,000 patients on the platform today, um, which is in, you know, a drop in the bucket for the tens of millions of people that struggle with this every year, but kind of crazy to think about where we were just you know, a year ago. And, yeah. um, and so in terms of the data, you know, I'll use Jefferson Health as an example, because uh, Jefferson did this without us. They kept it as an arm's length and we're, we're both very proud of it. Um, compared to a control group, a couple of hundred using Neuroflow, a couple of hundred not on Neuroflow, we were able to show after 12 months, a 34% reduction in emergency department utilization. Uh, wow. That is incredible decrease in ED utilization. And, and the, you know, maybe the not surprising, surprising thing is most of those utilizations were not uh, the primary reason for the utilization wasn't behavioral health related, uh, which then just, I think, speaks to that integration of mental wow. health and you know, physical health. Wow. And so, well, we haven't yet talked about pricing, but presumably that if you could show, if you could rely on that kind of improvement, the payback would be a no brainer. Uh, for a provider, yeah, for a yeah. yeah, we we try to model out depending on the system, you know, their their uh, population mix and that sort of thing between a three and five x ROI on yeah. their investment in neuro. Yeah, do you price it based on the patient population? How do you how do you price it? Yeah, so it um typically we do a PM PM type rate, so it's a subscription model. You pay for the number of patient licenses that you want to to include on the system. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's quite the journey. And you've mentioned along the way some, some amazing markers of, of progress. Talk, talk a little bit about, about financing. The reason I had the idea of inviting you is I saw an announcement. You guys just raised some money. So tell us a little bit about the financing and what that journey has been like. Yeah, yeah. yeah they say uh, it gets easier to raise money and uh, you don't, and it's the easiest when you don't need the money. And, uh, <laughs> Whoever said that uh, was right, <laughs> because uh, the, the first round, the seed round, like once we, my second semester, second year of business school, and then once we graduated, was maybe the hardest thing professionally I ever had to do. It was truly selling the dream. Uh, we had three products, three revenue, just me, a few interns, and Adam, my co-founder. Uh, and you know, we had some people that believed in us, thankfully. Um, this past round, uh, it was led by a strategic who actually is a customer uh, and a partner in Magellan Healthcare. Wow. Um, and they, you know, they saw a lot of value in it as a customer and asked if they wanted, you know, if we would accept an investment. And it was that, um, you know, for us, we didn't really need the money. We weren't fundraising. I wasn't out on the fundraising block uh, talking to investors. And we had plenty of money left from our series A raise that we raised just 12 months earlier. Um, but the, the prospect of being able to um, get that money at attractive terms for the company uh, earlier than what we would have raised um, in, a, in an accelerated fashion. So I can focus on strategy and building the business 
was very attractive. Um, and so this, this past round, you know, Magellan has been great partners. It's been really accelerating our growth and our, our uh, prospects in the market. Uh, and so this uh, Series B raise that we just uh, closed, which is a $20 million round, um, is going to go towards a lot of growth, sales and marketing and, and product innovation. Yeah, you know, as you mentioned that strategic round, I, I, a question I've always wanted to ask in this context comes up, which is how, how do you think about the risks of taking money from someone in the industry? Does that, uh, does that pollute the waters? Does that cut off some options for the future uh, in terms of acquisition and future partnering? How'd you think about that? So I think the short answer is um, yes, but the business school answer is it depends. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Good, you could be a professor. <laughs> so the, I mean, the those are all considerations that you have to take into place, but the, as they say, the devil's in the details. And so we, were, uh, we weren't going to do a deal as a company that um, that limited our options moving forward. And we weren't gonna do a deal in the company that uh, we didn't feel like accelerated our ability to make a bigger impact. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, you know, I can't go into too many of the details of the deal specifically, but, but we're very happy with um, yeah. you know, all of those things that you would normally be concerned with not being concerned. Yeah, so I think the advice we'd give our listeners is don't don't eliminate from consideration a strategic investor. You just got to manage the details to make exactly. sure you cover this. Um, so you've been you're in the midst of one of the most challenging transitions in entrepreneurship, which is a scrappy startup where the whole company can fit in a room to you know dozens or tens of uh, of, of people in a in a mid-sized company, growing company. Um, what have been the biggest challenges in scaling the organization? Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of challenges um, associated with it. Uh, you know, you you have to, I'd say it's scaling process. So, you know, there'd be a time where I was in every meeting at the company because I was one of five people. And so you had to be in every meeting at the company. And now there's meetings that occur across the company that, you know, not everybody's involved in at all. And so communication has been such a communicating standards, expectations, strategy, why we're doing things, uh, when we're doing things, it's been really tough. And that's been exasperated by the last 12 months with the pandemic, uh, you know, 95% of us are remote and we're not working together, right? There's, there's, you can't just walk to the desk next to you and communicate something. You have to do that more intentionally. So I'd say it's communication and, and, um, and, you know, those different processes, scaling that has been really tough. Um, you know, the other one that a lot of people have told me and warned me about, and maybe that's why I've been more deliberate about it, is been scaling culture, um, yeah. you know, getting the right people. And that's maybe something I've overcorrected for in terms of just obsessively making sure that we hire the right people and everybody on the team, we're at 64 people now, um, you know, view our culture, the values, the company for which they work at now, you know, as a, you know, they're the defenders of that. They, they yeah. the, that starts and stops with them. Yeah. You know, you said that this, that that original fundraise was the hardest thing you'd ever done professionally. I thought really harder than being a field, artil field artillery captain. Uh, that's saying a lot, but I, I did wonder about 
the military experience. And I can imagine that cutting both ways as you try to cut a, create a company culture. Um, how have you taken the best aspects of what you learned in the military um, and adapted it to what, what's probably a pretty different environment uh, in your case? Yeah. Fair. Yeah. I, well, and I guess maybe the military was hard in a different way. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, so look, I, I think there's, when you look at the army and really the essence of serving in the military, you're part of an organization that has to solve tough problems and you have to do it together. And in most cases, you're doing it with imperfect information, not knowing what's around the corner. You know, that sounds very similar to me as a startup culture. Uh, yeah. Just different, different type of things, obviously, in different environments. But you're, and so, kind of taking that mentality of we're in this together, uh, we're on a mission together, and it's bigger than any one person, uh, and we're going to succeed or fail together, um, has been our kind of driving mentality at the company since day one. Yeah, and and maybe I I wonder uh, to what extent those of us who haven't served in the military misunderstand or mischaracterize what a military culture is. Uh, so you, we, I think we have in our heads, it's very command and control. Uh, is, is that true? Is that a misconception? No, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of collaboration. There's a lot of bottom-up refinement that comes yeah. from feedback. And, you know, then there's this kind of cyclic kind of behavior in the military. Uh, what I would say is, Watch Full Metal Jacket because it's it's a great movie, but don't yeah. think Full Metal Jacket is like what the military is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's great advice. Well, Chris, we're out of time. This is so interesting. It's been fantastic to watch your success. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Where where can our listeners go to learn more? Yeah. Thanks, Carl. Uh, you can find us at neuroflow.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at Neuroflow Live and uh, Facebook at Neuroflow Live. We'd love to connect with you. All right, thanks again. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.